autumn time. The wind is playing autumn games through the garden and the lanes, picking up and swirling round leaves of orange, red and brown, gusting through each swaying tree, tossing apples till they're free, shaking conkers till they drop and open wide with prickly pop. The wind is dancing full of fun, laughing in the autumn sun. It tumbles acorns, fir cones, leaves, to make a carpet under trees. Autumn. Definition of autumn. The season after summer and before winter in the Northern Hemisphere, from September to November. So, Draycott Diaries listeners, that is what we are going to be discussing today. And I am delighted to be able to introduce everybody to Peter Bright, who has been a resident for many, many, many years in the Mendip area. And he's kindly said he will talk to me today about autumn. Now, first of all, let me tell you a little bit about the background of Peter. Peter is a retired biology teacher, a natural historian, and also passionate about wildlife and everything that goes around wildlife as we know it. So he's absolutely the perfect person for me to talk to about autumn. Welcome, Peter Bright. Thank you. Peter, may I ask you what your definition of autumn would be? Yes, it starts from the end of summer, so that in fact it is the sort of halfway between as things finish. So lots of animals and plants flower all the way through the summer and then are producing seeds, are going into hibernation, are disappearing into the ground to sort of last over the winter, and that therefore autumn in wildlife terms is that changeover from putting up with things as opposed to growing and multiplying. Well, that's a very succinct answer, and I think that makes it very clear. Before we go on, can we just talk about the weather patterns of autumn? Clearly, you know, there's a lot of changes, we all know, with our with our with our weather uh, patterns at the moment. But what would you describe autumn weather being? And is there a particular reason for it being more windy, for example, more blustery? I think it's tricky to, to justify that there is something particular about the weather. Because if you look at the long history of September and October weather records, that there are sunny ones and windy ones and wet ones and so on. But what does happen every autumn is that the days get shorter, the nights get colder, and therefore those sorts of effects, the day length effects uh, what's going on, and is actually often the trigger that enables trees to start dropping their leaves when the days get shorter which is why leaves tend to stay on trees next to streetlights, because their day-length sensing system is being fooled by the extra light from those. So it's that short days and colder nights and early mornings that I think then drives what happens in the autumn. And it may or may not reflect in the weather in that sense. 
Well, I think that's that's right. And I'd like to just put in my penneth here, which is, as you know, I'm registered blind. I have 10% sight. But for me, my other senses have become much heightened. And I always think of autumn as kind of cozying up, log fires, freshly baked bread, all of those sort of things that make you feel cozied up. And it's kind of, I'm wondering whether the weather, that kind of effect the weather has on me is having the same effect on animals, which is why everything is beginning to go into a sort of more of a more passive state, would that be fair to say? They are preparing for times when they can't grow. So the grass tends to stop growing when it, the temperature goes below seven or eight degrees and the trees drop their leaves you know, as the days get shorter and therefore it becomes, you know, from a tree's point of view, unprofitable to have a lot of leaves, so it drops them. So I think from that point of view, it's the, it's the signal for when to start preparing for winter. And obviously that, from a tree's point of view, is taking the nutrients out of the leaves before it drops them in order to save the nutrients to use again in the spring when uh, everything will then start up again. Okay, can we talk about trees for a minute? We all love this time of year. Well, I particularly love this time of year, especially when we have those cold, crisp days with blue skies. But when the the leaves look so vivid in their colours of autumn, which is all sorts of browns and yellows, I know that gold is a, a bit of a contentious subject. But can you explain to, to, to me why? What is the biological reason that leaves do go the colours that they do in autumn? Well, tree, tree leaves, if you take um, a tree leaf apart, you find that there are actually a whole, a whole series of different pigments in the leaves. There are two green ones and two yellow ones. And clearly, when you look at a leaf and it's green, what you're seeing is the effect of the two green ones. But of course, the two green ones contain the magnesium and a lot of nutrients, which is why they are broken down and saved for the following year. And if you take away the green pigments, you're left with the yellow ones. And those yellow ones is what gives the yellow colours. And I think, therefore, those yellow colours can turn brown as well. And so you get the yellows and browns and golds. But in the sugar maples and so on of the North America, if the weather is sunny during the day and cold at night, the withdrawal of sugars is reduced in the leaves and then the sunshine and sugars tends to produce the red colours, which is what the sugar maples are famous for. And presumably our Japanese maples, sugar maples here, will do the same thing should they get cold nights and sunny days. Chance will be a fine thing. <laughs> so is there such a colour as, I mean, obviously it's not gold as such, but is this, you know, sometimes you actually feel that some of them look like they've got gold leaves, or is that just a very, another vivid colour of brown? I mean, I like the yellows, right? But of course, the yellows and browns and golds are all intertwined. And indeed, gold is a mixture of colours anyway. But I think, I like the maples, what I think of as yellow, but it's a very rich sort of yellow colour. And those beautiful, vivid yeah. reds as well of the Virginia creeper, which I know, again, is, 
is not indigenous to this country, yeah. is it? But it's uh, they are so beautiful. Why, Peter? I mean, when I'm out walking, for me, as I said, it's all a sensory experience now. So I'm smelling damp earth, early mornings. And of course, the nuts are now quite prevalent and underfoot. So there's a wonderful sort of crunch of leaves and nuts. It's just a fantastic experience to be out walking. What is bringing on the nuts? How do the nuts know that this is time to fruit and fall? Well, the the formation of the nuts will have started probably the previous year, so that the hazels now are carrying the pollen and the ovaries and so on ready for forming the fruits next spring when the hazel catkins will be. And then all the way through the summer, those fruits will be developed so that the actual ripe hazelnuts will be available or will appear in a, next autumn or indeed this autumn. And when either, if any that survive the squirrels actually taking them apart, will get planted by some squirrels and will in a position to germinate and be the young hazel trees of the future. So that it, it, the preparation for that is actually over a long period of time. It hasn't, as it were, suddenly happened, you know, in the last fortnight. Yes, whereas me and my ignorance kind of rather thought that all happened. So that's fascinating. This is a, another question I've always asked, and I think I saw a documentary about it. You never know, everybody has different ideas on this. But can trees talk to each other in the form of, do they have some sort of communication? I think in terms of, uh, you know, chatting about the weather or something, it seems a little unlikely. But it does seem to be apparent that young beech trees will develop in underneath a canopy of beech. So it looks as if young beech trees can get nutrient connections with their, the big trees amongst which they're growing so that actually they will grow better in that presence so that there are connections between the roots that enable them to be fed because, of course, they're growing in the shade of the big beech trees and you might expect them to grow rather poorly. There are also other possible connections between the roots which share fungal networks in the soil. And therefore, there's the possibility of these fungal networks providing chemical links between different plants, different trees actually growing there. So it may well be that some trees you know, grow well next to other trees, but not next to each other. So you don't, on the whole, find a collection of crab apples. They tend to grow solitarily. And therefore, perhaps that's a connection there. And it's also true if you go up into the leaves that uh, uh, trees can share information between different parts of them by producing molecules that travel in the air. So if a caterpillars are busy eating, eating a part of an oak tree, the leaves give off these pheromones, which means that other parts of the tree, or indeed next door trees, can develop rather more poisonous chemicals inside their leaves to perhaps make it a bit more difficult for the caterpillars to actually eat them. So there are certainly connections between trees, either through the air as chemicals or within the ground, either by fungi or interconnections between their roots. Wow, that's extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. 
So let us move on then, Peter, to wildlife in a more general sense of what is happening at the moment. This covers several areas. I'm going to ask you one first. I mean, slugs and snails, there are I'm sure, well, I can see you pulling a face here. Uh, but, you know, for me, as a very novice vegetable grower, I seem to be endlessly sort of kindly, but trying to distract them from my very paltry amount of growing. Where do slugs and snails and butterflies and insects generally, where, what's happening to them at this time of year, autumn? Well, I think the slugs and snails will actually go on existing we probably might not notice them because we're not growing our cabbages in the winter. But the slugs and snails can cope quite well with it being cool and cold. And therefore, as long as it's not frosty in particular, the slugs and snails may well be out and active. But of course, they're not eating our vegetables because we're not growing them then. No. But lots of the other insects have gone into stages which you can call hibernation, so that the um, houseflies will have disappeared into our lofts and under the roof tiles, when, of course, they will reappear in the spring when uh, it warms up and we find houseflies buzzing around our houses. Or the wasps, the queen wasps, will have left the nests and will have found nooks and crannies to hide in, and therefore in the spring they will reappear to establish new wasp nests. But I think at the moment, the insects are disappearing into nooks and crannies to hide away. And of course, each insect, or other animal for that matter, will have its own particular stage at which it does this. So if it's a hibernating hedgehog, it has to be a particular weight if it's to stand a good chance of surviving right the way through the winter. Which is why rescue things worry about how heavy any young hedgehogs are and they need feeding up or may need feeding up before they are actually then organised to go into hibernation. Before we leave the insect world, I've got one word, house word, two words, house spider. I just, everywhere I touch at the moment seems to be a scuttling house spider. I mean, I love spiders, so I have no problem with them living with me. In fact, I invite them in. Why so many of these enormous house spiders this time of year? I think it's that they are around all the year round, but they're just rather more conspicuous. Apparently, the male house spiders are chasing around trying to find female house spiders, oh. which is why they're becoming more conspicuous, because they're chasing around uh, looking for them. But these house spiders live in our barns, garages, disused corners of our houses. And of course, they are large, which is why we notice them. But they're also reported to be incredibly fast. And they have been reported you know, on our Westby Wildlife WhatsApp group who are um, taking photos of what I believe is the giant house spider, which live in our houses and are really common. Do they come up our drains? Or is uh, that a myth? I, women, I think it's perfectly possible, but exactly how they get in, they could come in in all sorts of nooks and crannies. Yeah. And, of course, could have come in when they were quite young and therefore, of course, would get through quite small spaces. Uh, okay, so it's not that they're coming up through the drains because I think one has this kind of other, rather innocent <laughs> sort of theory that they're coming up through our baths and our sinks. 
Well, I mean, it, it, it could be that they can, but I think it's much more likely that they fall into the baths mm. from roaming about the house. I think they're much more likely to come in the open windows mm. during the summer. And of course, once they're in, that's where they live and are part of the house fly control system. Of course. It's a circular thing, isn't it? Well, I love them and they're always welcome in my house. Any house spiders listening, come on in. Let's move on. I'd love to ask you about, let's just talk about the badger, because the badger has a particular reproduction system, I think, that means they eat a lot of berries. You're going to, I'm sure, tell me I've got this wrong, but eat a lot of berries this time of year, which brings up their fat store, which somehow starts their reproduction system off so that they all give birth in February. Is that right or wrong? Um, I think they do give birth in February so that the young, you know, in a sense, coming out, you know, in the spring when there's lots of food. But, I mean, the main food item for badgers is earthworms, which is why Somerset, with lots of fields with lots of earthworms in is to some lots of extent is badger paradise and yes they'll eat berries and they'll eat uh, you know they'll eat young chickens and all sorts of things but you think uh, if you look in your lawns there's sometimes a little sort of dug up patches which I suspect is a badger digging up something they could be digging up roots but I think they're much more likely to be digging up earthworms but they, yes, they will go for berries. But I think, um, I'm not sure they get terribly fat by eating blackberries, but they're certainly building up their food stores and actually will go on feeding through the winter if the weather is you know, reasonably warm. And I think that's one of the, the things that increasing global warming may well mean that they're more active. And of course, unless it gets really cold, it becomes difficult for them to hibernate because they keep waking up and running about and doing things. But of course, if the earthworms are still active, then of course they can come out and get some food, as opposed to disappearing for long periods of time when it is, you know, minus this and that and the other as to how winters supposedly used to be 50 and 60 years ago. Okay, so global warming is suiting the badger community. It's an interesting question whether it is suiting them or not. They certainly seem to be coping with it because I think badgers have never been commoner than they are now. But it does help that they're not being shot, poisoned, tormented in all the ways that uh, they were controlled 100 years ago. Somerset is synonymous with apples and cider making. Whenever, you know, the people know that I live in Somerset, I think there is a sort of sense that of me sitting in a hay bale, chewing straw and drinking cider. So let's bust this myth. Is Somerset, or not, in case maybe, is Somerset, why is Somerset always had this history of apples and cider and apple juice making, particularly? Well, I've, I've thought a little bit about this, and I think... You know, you could include Devon and you could include Hereford. Uh, to some extent, I think it's to do with what grows well in Somerset is grass and fruit trees. And you can obviously grow fruit trees and have grass around the base of them, as opposed to being in East Anglia, where you, it's actually suitable for growing, to some extent, much more valuable things like wheat 
and barley. And therefore it might be that Somerset, because of its ability to grow apples and grass well, and other things less well, that actually the best you know, that can be done is to actually have haymaking and orchards as being what's produced because more valuable crops don't grow so well because of the soil, because of the dampness or whatever else it is about the environment. So it may be to do with um, what grows well or what doesn't grow well that would be more valuable. And you therefore grow, you wouldn't think of having orchards in East Anglia when you can grow giant fields of wheat. And of course that climate's much drier there. And it's drier, so that it's to do with what grows really well. Mm. And the, the, the apples and pears seem to grow particularly well in Somerset and Devon and in Hereford. But presumably the mixture of soils and mm. climate, the whole lot of things interact with each other to make counties suitable or not suitable. It's also, it's a particular type of apple, isn't it? I mean, not just any old apple is going to make good apple juice or cider. There are hundreds of varieties of apples, many of them with local names. So there is a Stoke Red, which is supposedly, uh, you know, the Rodney Stoke Red uh, on that one. But there's hundreds of cider apples, and the cider apples have a particular uh, quantity of tannins in them which make them you know, suitable for, for making cider with, but that are too bitter or too tannin-rich to actually be an eating apple. Whereas the eating apples by, for making apple juice with or for making cider with are far too bland to give the tastes, which is why there are special cider apples. And then there are different sorts of cider apples and the best ciders made by mixing we have, I think, probably picked apples for eight or nine different varieties of mixing uh, rather than just one. So there isn't, I think, just one. There isn't just one eating apple. There isn't just one cooking apple. Though there is a star cooking apple, which is Bramley's, but it makes, I think, rather tedious juice and oh. is not really appropriate for making cider with either. We don't want tedious juice. <laughs> well... I'm going to ask you a question which I know will make you cross because I've asked you this before when we were talking on the phone. And we're only going to, we know it happens in January and it's not autumn, but just very briefly, because it's a lovely Somerset um, thing that we do here. And we have quite a lot of listeners from abroad. So could we just very, very briefly just touch on wassailing uh, or wassailing? What's the pronunciation? Well, I mean, I, I use the word wassailing. Okay. Well, and it's a. You know, it's a tradition that goes with the making of cider and therefore it's appreciating apple trees and what they produce. And it's a, you know, a midwinter festival and it's really an excuse for a party in the dark <laughs> where um, there's a whole lot of traditions uh, associated with appreciating the orchards and what they produce and it's probably not an accident that I think Old Twelfth Night is supposedly the time to do your wassailing, but it, what it really means is the beginning of January. And it takes about three months for barrels of apple juice that you have created in late October to use the yeasts that are in them to turn themselves into cider, and it's ready to drink 
by the beginning of January. Fair enough. And you've never been able to explain, but I know one of the things is that they stick toast in the tree. But but one of the other things they do, which I thought was a lovely thing, did you say it was a faggot? Something to do with some sticks tied up with blackberries? Yeah. yeah well, it. Um, I mean, you have a obviously have a fire because it's dark, and therefore you're. It's part of the sort of uh, midwinter festival type activities, and you gather together some ash sticks and tie them together into a bunch which is called a faggot and it's tied into a bunch with three bands of blackberry and this is the uh, if you can choose the right one uh, you when it's thrown onto the fire the people round and about are said choose which band you think is going to burn through first and if that's the one that does burn through first then your secret wishes are going to come true that may or may not be true, <laughs> but it's a good story. Well, as an academic, I can understand that you would question its validation. I'm coming towards the end now, Peter, and I'm going to ask you that inevitable question. Global warming is upon us. I know that it's not new, but it is upon us. My simple question is to somebody with your extensive knowledge, is it too late? Is our planet lost? I mean, no, it's not. I mean, clearly, it's too late in the sense that global warming has been happening for the last 100, 200 years. But what we can do something about is the extent to which we reduce the build-up of CO2 into the environment so that if we can keep uh, a lid on or we can reduce our demands on putting CO2 into the air, we can reduce the degree of changes that are going to happen in the next 50 or 100 years. But it requires action now rather than thinking, well, it'll all be all right eventually, uh, which as far as the changing sort of average temperatures, which in a sense it gets called climate change, global warming, however you want to wish it, the warmest five years have happened in the last 10 years which I think indicates that it is happening. But we can do something about it, and we can do something about it now, so that our children you know, have a much less climate-affected environment to be in. Parallel with the same problem is the wildlife emergency, such that insects have, you know, are down to 25% of what they were 100 years ago, maybe even less. But I think that sort of the global warming and its effects on the climate and our effects on the wildlife, in a sense, are two sides of the same, trying to change the future of that now. So this autumn we're in now could be warmer possibly than autumns back in there 100 years ago? Um, on average terms, that will be true. Peter, we need to bring it to a finish now. Now, because this is all about autumn, I, I just want to say a big thank you to you, A, for being a contributor on Draycott Diaries, thank you, and for talking to us so honestly today and answering some of my questions <laughs> must have seemed a little bit trite sometimes to somebody of your knowledge. But can I say, when I walked in, you gave me the most beautiful bottle of apple juice that we've been talking about this morning, and I'm going to take that away and sit in front of my fire 
and have a glass of that and think about our conversation this morning. So can I thank you very warmly again for your hospitality and for talking to us today. You're entirely welcome. (laughs) You've caught me. You have caught me. I am literally, as I am speaking, sipping Peter's gorgeous, freshly pressed apple juice in front of a log fire. How brilliant is that? And just thinking about autumn surrounding me in the cosy village of Draycott. Thank you again. A few other people, just to credit, would be Sylvie Barham. Sylvie, I asked her to find me a perfect poem that would just really describe autumn. And what she read in the prologue, well, that is it. And Sylvie, you read it beautifully, and thank you so much. You are a star. Kirk Pennell, you found us the photographs of autumn, and you are a marvellous and talented local photographer. Jeff Varney edited this programme and recorded it with me. Thank you, Jeff, for letting me drag you round the countryside. And my brother, of course, arranged the music. My name is Tiggy. I was the voice. And God willing, we will be back with you in about a month's time. Thank you for listening, everybody. Mm-hmm.